0: Yo, this is Real Sankara Hours. Real Sankara Hours. Follow us on Twitter at Sankara Hours. This is Adam Hudson. Um, Follow me on Twitter at AdamHudson5.
1: And this is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn, Peter, M G M G U N N. Peter, saying it like I'm talking to customer service. Um, I had to restart (laughs) from... Two followers, but don't let the join date fool you. I've been on Twitter since, like, 2013, when it was actually cool. So, Mm -hmm. been on these streets, and I've seen a lot of you people that are thinking about saying anything at us. I know what you people are about. Just uh, gotta preempt the haters, you know? But uh, how are you doing tonight?
0: I'm good. I'm drinking... um... Well, I'm drinking. Uh, I'm drinking... This new Belgium emperor. So on Southern Label is a uh, 100% employee owned. This is a uh, New Belgium 100% yeah. employee owned. socialism yeah. right there.
1: Well, Sort of. Um, I yeah. think New Belgium's an ESOP and employee stock ownership program, which is not uh, the same as a work as a worker owned co op. Uh, uh, we should get into that because I feel uh, like co ops are like a really big thing and a really important thing going forward in the future Um, and making sure people understand the difference is going to is big because basically like a worker owned co-op is uh, is like every worker gets one vote on the board. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And an ESOP is basically just like they let the employees buy stock options, you know, Uh, like all the work. So it's not
0: like worker
1: controlled. Uh, yeah, I mean, on this, not directly. It's like, there's right. still a board, and employees are shareholders on it. But okay. New Belgium, but it's better than other stuff. Yeah. New Belgium's pretty good, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm just... Yeah. Anchor team just got unionized, I believe, so...
0: Right, yeah, they did. They got unionized, so... Shout out to um, all of the hard-working um, brewers and, you know, people mm-hmm. working in... in you know, the beer industry and fighting hard yeah. for labor rights.
1: Yeah. Uh, while we're on the topic of shout outs, I wanted to make sure I got in. Um, shout out to the Wet'suwet'en people in occupied what they call British Columbia. Um, I don't, who are preventing. <laughs> Uh, Trudeau and his oil cronies from they're resisting Trudeau and his oil cronies trying to build a pipeline through their lands um, and I think today they got they got a pause and they announced that the construction will be paused for two days as the uh, hereditary chiefs we'll be meeting with provincial and federal ministers. This is a really important thing to be up on. Yeah. So, um yeah. Solidarity yeah. to them.
0: Yeah, we, you know, we are a Pan African uh Marxist podcast, but we still also, you know, stand in solidarity with other um uh, colonized people throughout the world. Yes. So, and
1: uh, and believe in decolonization, which yeah. You know, we will Hopefully it's some, I mean, we will at some point explain sort of what that actually can look like, because it's kind of a thing people freak out a little bit about, but. uh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I also think like, it'd be good to get into it because I think it's easy, like a lot of radical concepts, it's easier for people to use it as just like a slogan rather than like, you know, something with a real political concept with actual uh, material meat on the bones. Um, so this episode we're going to be talking about, um, we're going to be talking about a couple things, uh, toward the latter half of the episode around there, we'll be talking about, um, Thomas Sankara,
1: um, and the myth, the legend,
0: yep. Who our podcast is named after, um, known as Africa's Che Guevara. He was, um, uh, the, the, uh, um, the former, he was a revolutionary from Burkina Faso, and he was a president of Burkina Faso um, throughout the mid '80s. And he was a very important Marxist and Pan African figure, um, and and a very important figure in global um, Black liberation. I think there's there's some takeaways from from um, from his legacy that that are applicable today. But the first half, what we're going to dive into. Is obviously the 2020 presidential oh,
1: election shit. in the United
0: States. The ongoing... The ongoing democracy
1: and, Democracy <laughs> facade spectacle.
0: Yeah. Hashed uh, democracy TM, as I like to think of. it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, uh, Peter's going to kick us off by talking about um, the South Carolina yeah. primary. And I'm, and I'm going to be talking about the um, this really explosive New York Times piece about the super delegates and democratic party officials and how they're basically just like be, just saying fuck Sanders. So yeah. yeah, Peter, why don't you take, take it away with um, okay. South Carolina?
1: Yes. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday night. So the primary is in two days and supposedly right now they say Joe Biden has a commanding lead. Um, in a state whose democratic party is mostly black um joe biden he just you know he just loves black people you know we just love joe biden it's just just one of those things right even every every
0: every black person has like a statue of joe biden in our home you know
1: you know us us colored folks we just we just love joe biden even if he's lying about being arrested in south africa and nice. we all
0: know who Corn Pop is, okay? We all know Corn, a guy Corn, Corn Pop's
1: Pop. everyone's cousin. Um, yep, exactly. Because all related. next to
0: next next to Pookie and Ray Ray, and
1: you know, and T Bone. Um, yeah, T Bone as well. Up in Newark. Um, yeah, yeah. But but I find South Carolina to be interesting because you know, especially in 2016, this was sort of the big thing was that like um okay yeah bernie's doing well and yeah he basically he i mean if we had the same measurements we have now back then he probably would have won iowa and he won new hampshire right but you know once he gets to the south right like hillary clinton's just got that sewed up right he's you know and it and why and why and i remember when i was still on twitter and you know And in other situations, like, older black people, um, you know, just being like, what the hell is going on? I mean, like, why do you, like, I know that you are, like, generally in favor of the things Bernie Sanders is asking for. Like, why don't you like Bernie Sanders? And you'd get the weirdest, um, you get, like, the weirdest responses from, like, Bernie's not a Democrat to he sucks at being a legislator, though. Nobody, no sane person cares about a presidential candidate's effectiveness as a legislature legislator. They just made that one up. Um, Right.
0: Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, you know, he's just a white guy from Vermont or whatever. Um, These are and these are people who I'm pretty sure, like, knew who Bernie Sanders was beforehand. But, you know, I guess this came to a head in South Carolina when he got, like, really wiped out. Um, And I remember, and I probably should have looked this up, I should have done more research for this. But, you know, if I'm going to, like, be reading books for this podcast, you guys got to, we got to be making a little bit more money. (laughs)
0: Subscribe, sus- subscribe, 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 and you'll get also uh, what we forgot to mention at the beginning is uh, we have bonus content. We have a we we'll like to call it okay. real sankara after hours. So you know that's that's bonus only for
1: patrons. Yeah, um, but there's some interesting there's some interesting things. But you know anyone who sort of, like, is a career Democrat, understands that in a lot of states and cities, there's just, like, a machine politics where, like, you know, basically, like, these people have the power and they're bosses and they get to decide. And you basically have to kiss their ass for a few years. um, And then they will let you move up to higher offices. Um, And, you know, basically by doing that process... Um, Then you eventually get to, like, be in position where you can run for, like, you know, real shit, like, governor or senator or eventually president. And this is, like, you know, so South Carolina is definitely, like, a very machine-heavy state. And specifically, of course, right, Republicans like to talk about, you know, oh, right, we're the party of Lincoln, right? But... I mean, they are factually correct in the sense that, like, the Republican Party was created for Abraham Lincoln, basically, um, and the Democratic part, the Democratic Republican Party, is what it was called back in like the yeah. early part of the 1800s. You know, it turned. You know, the Democratic Party in the 1860s, right? was the party of secessionists, of Civil War secessionists. And after, you know, after the Civil War, right, there was Reconstruction where the Republican Party, there was a wing of it called the Radical Republicans, right, um, who were very ascendant. um, And they were doing a big hand in, you know, sort of shaping Reconstruction. And Reconstruction is a thing that kind of gets glossed over like if you're in history class they're like oh reconstruction happened um and then yeah. it's de- stopped but they don't really talk about what that was and this is very important specifically for south carol the south carolina democratic party um reconstruction was basically like You know, after, right, war is very destructive. So, like, after a war is over, like, the entire land that the war was fought on is destroyed. Um, And if you lose the war, then the winning army basically gets to, you know, run shit. So, in the context of the U.S., right, then, like, the U.S. army from the north um, basically was occupying the south, um, you know, after the Civil War. And, you know, S- Southerners think this is bad, but the big part of that was that part of during this occupation, there is a whole, you know, basically concerted movement to destroy the secessionist plantation, you know, slave owning class that made up the holders of power in the South, you know, and enfranchise black people. And I mean, e- you know, provide reparations, you know, provide equal rights. Um, Even, you know, Black people were elected to public office in the 1870s, right?
0: Yeah, uh, fun fact, uh, my dad told me this, I remember when I was a kid like years ago, but um, both sides of my family like to do um, um, family history, stuff like that. And my dad pointed out that one of my ancestors was uh, a former slave who uh, was elected as a, I think it was, a, he was a local politician in, in Texas. Right after it was during the period of Reconstruction. So yeah, during that period, it was a brief moment where, like, you know, a lot of formerly enslaved Africans who were newly free after the Civil War, because you know slavery was abolished, you know, black people were. It was easier for them to participate in uh, political life. So you did see like, you know, some black elected officials. Now, as a way to, yeah, essentially, uh, make up for, you know centuries of uh, slavery yeah
1: Yeah. and i mean south carolina specifically um was a majority black state that like it was that heavy Um, and also
0: like to add some context like i was looking at the 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 population like the 1790 census for like um the 13 colonies at the time and like i believe it was states like south carolina virginia a lot of those states were like at, at 1790, like a third of their population was black, like African. So by the 1800s, yeah, a state like Carolina, that that population is going to grow. So this is like consider consider that like 1790, states like Virginia and you know like South Carolina and, and Georgia, like they had you know almost anywhere between a third to two fourths of their population uh being like enslaved african like anywhere between like 20 to 40% were like black people in those states were slaves
1: yeah yeah it's nuts um south carolina became majority white by 1920 because so many black people had left so that should give you a sort of insight into this but sort of the, so during reconstruction in 1876 um there was a gubernatorial election, and so obviously, right? So obviously, um, the slave owning class does not really appreciate having their power stripped away and their slaves being freed, and all that shit. Um, so they organize, which are, I mean, let's. There's no mincing words about it. Terrorist organizations, yeah, like the Klan. But in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. There was another organization called the Red Shirts, and they were, I mean, I guess they're not terror. They were the Red Shirts were a little more than terrorist organization that they were like basically a straight up paramilitary. Um, It was. And so for the 18, the 1876 gubernatorial election, the election for South Carolina governor's office, um, the Democratic Party basically had its own militia that like it mobilized to basically terrorize black people into not voting for the Republican and instead vote for the Democrat, Wade Hampton, the third who won by a narrow margin of slightly over 1100 votes. Nice clutch. Hmm. Um, So yeah, I mean, this is the kind of politics. This is the, Political history of South Carolina, like military coups straight up. And people, I think a lot of times that history gets glossed over and people don't understand exactly how violent sort of the revanchist project of the white planter class was. But it was, I mean, it was really fucking heavy. Um, and so, you know, from 18, you know, basically once the Democratic Party gets put back in power, you know, at the end of Reconstruction. It basically has a stranglehold on the state's politics like it did basically in every other part of the South, right? The Republican Party, you know, does not have a... It's it's not... A, it's Brand's not doing so well in the South because it represents, you know, the North, the uh, War of Northern Aggression, aggression all that shit. Um, and... You know, that is the Democratic Party, you know, through, obviously, through the 40s, through, you know, Strom Thurmond's party, right? And, you know, and it basically was that party until um, the 60s, right, of course. But, you know, when, like, some people started defecting towards the, uh, the Republicans over civil rights legislature and such, but... You know, Strom Thurmond was still a Democrat, or I guess yeah. I, he. I guess he eventually switched parties, but like the Democratic Party, even after the '60s, um, you know, still there's I guess like political blueprints. I'm not saying it was a racist party at that point, but there's sort of like political mechanisms. Um, I mean, there's
0: th- I think yeah, because I think they still have that sort of good old Southern boy kind of culture in the democratic party, even after yeah. the sixties. Yeah. yeah like and I think, yeah, like people like, I mean, Carter's pretty liberal, but I mean, he came from the South. Um, uh, Bill Clinton, I think is a good example. Like he, yeah. he was in the, in the nineties, he was, you know, seen as like, Oh, I like black people. I'm down with black folks, blah, blah, blah. blah. But like, he was still kind of had that. He's like a good Southern boy. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so yeah.
1: Um, you know, and South Carolina was still like a very, I mean, a white law, white rule was written into the constitution until 1968. And another fun thing that happened in South Carolina in 1968 was the Orangeburg massacre two years before Kent state, mind you, um, where there was a protest over segregation at a bowling alley. Um, Bowling alley is still there, apparently, or at least the sign is. Um, Hmm. And three people were killed when police began firing live ammunition into the crowd. Of course, they claimed that they were being shot at. Of course, you know, good. You know, I find that stuff interesting in the sense that, like, white you know, when people talk about totalitarianism and authoritarianism, they don't understand that like white supremacy was a totalitarian system.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, but I guess the sort of the main point I'm, I'm trying to get to racial Maddow style is, uh, you know, they had to, as basically white people bolted for their, a lot of those people bolted for the Republican Party. Um, they had to sort of encourage or they had to cultivate like a sort of black deal making class. And I feel like this is an example because they still held on to state legislatures until 1993, which is kind of crazy. So like the is completely changed supposedly, but they still sort of have like the, their political machines working. And so in the 1990s when they did redistricting, um, then state representative Don Beatty, um, they redistricted things to give black democrats more gerrymandered ste- seats in the house but by creating more black majority seats they also created more extremely white districts which helped the geo- the republicans take over the legislature so i think like what that shows is that you know it's like a small percent a small amount of black people got some semblance of power But in the process of those of that small coterie being empowered, a white, you know, white supremacist party ended up getting a lot more power. Um, And the Democrats sort of, I mean, I guess they intentionally did this, Um, you know, I don't know, sort of not an expert on congressional districting maps, but like there's definitely ways to draw districts that are you know, would promote a more left agenda. The other thing that is important to understand about South Carolina, right, is, and a lot of states where you're like, why are they so conservative or whatever, um, is the lack of union representation, you know, in the Midwest Mm -hmm. or the East Coast or, you know, California still also, right? Like unions are a, big part of the Democratic Party. They're kind of the backbone of it, you know, especially in like yep. sort of the state and local functions. But this is not true in, you know, I, unions are notoriously weak in in the South. They, you know, and especially this is one of the things that I believe. Uh, yeah, South Carolina was right to work since 1954. And right to work, if you don't, understand what that is it's basically a law that says that like if you get hired at a play at a company that is represented by a union you don't have to join that union um, even though that union is still representing you you don't have to pay the union dues and of course this creates basically a sort of selfish incentive where you're just like I, I mean union dues are like 30 bucks a month or something like you know, in any situation, like, the amount of dues you would get, you would have to pay um, to unionize. And this is sort of a good, like, counter propaganda to anti-union shit. The amount of union dues you'd have to pay is always going to be a le- less than the amount more you would get from a collective bargaining agreement if you had a union. But, you know, it it's one of those it's one of those master republican laws so yeah since 1954 real ogs on this shit um and the lack of unions basically is prevents like the you know unions are like the main instrument for driving progressive policy in america and so in states where they're weak then the democratic party is just always going to be more conservative because they don't have that power structure. And instead, you know, they rely on the church, basically, you know. And yeah, the church is just, I mean, they're, you know, I'm not going to make blanket statements because I'm sh- about every church, every black church, or whatever, but it's always going to be like a more re- reactionary, conservative institution than labor unions. Sorry, that's the truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I don't I don't think that's uh I don't think that's too controversial to say. Um but yeah, so we'll see with South Carolina. Like we said, we're recording this, you know, Thursday night and uh wait, what's the day of the South it's it's Friday, right?
1: It's or Saturday, 29 okay. leap, leap day.
0: Yeah. So, um yeah, so that's that's going to be the South Carolina South Carolina primary. Um, this also does it tails into what I want to talk about and um, you know so I guess Peter you said the uh, Biden's leading in South Carolina right
1: yes they the media is very much trying to make like the Biden comeback a thing um, okay I believe okay, we'll that, see yeah, yeah well my it, my general sense is like for the sort of career Democrat apparatchiks they really don't want Bloomberg to be able to just take this shit over they also really right. don't want bernie to t- be able to win so you know the original plan of biden you know obama right he just he just sent a cease and desist letter uh, and that is i feel like that was one of those things where like he's sort of he's very much like i'm not weighing in but i'm sort of and but he's been doing these kind of moves yeah. subtly yeah yeah to very sort of aggressive signal, yeah signal that he's kind of that he's still like in favor of Biden, but he's not going to come out and endorse him because they need the process. You know, they have to rig it fair and square, right? Yeah. Speaking
0: of rigging, um, so the, so there is this um, piece that came out in the New York Times uh, today, actually, and uh, John Iderola of the Young Turks described it as a bombshell New York Times piece. Oh, and I think that's a pretty but- fair assessment
1: oh by the way yeah. young, young turks recognize your fucking union dude Stop yes, being, yes stop playing around
0: yeah so young turks yeah recognize your union just want to say that so shout out to the tyt union fighting hard for representation um anyway so this is a, a new york times piece the title of it is democratic leaders willing to risk party damage to stop bernie sanders <laughs> um, and so like the the sort of the 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 sort of subheadlines basically so they interviewed dozens of democratic party officials including 93 superdelegates and they they found overwhelming opposition to handing sanders a nomination if he fell short of a majority of delegates so apparently under the rules um in order to get the nomination you have to get a majority of delegates
1: 19 uh, and now,
0: Yeah, and also, like, consider the fact that there's, like, you know, over half a dozen people running on the ballot. So, like, it's going to be hard for any candidate to get a majority of of the delegates.
1: Um, And so, So, this this piece... Though, to be clear, Bernie is the only person who could possibly do it.
0: Exactly, yeah. So, the piece says um this is a third paragraph of it dozens of interviews with democratic establishment leaders this week show that they are not just worried about mr sanders's can- candidacy but are also willing to risk intra-party damage to stop his nomination yeah. at the national convention in july if they get the chance since mr Sanders' victory in nevada caucuses on saturday the times has interviewed 93 party officials all of them super delegates who could have a say on the nominee at the convention and found overwhelming opposition to handing Ver- the, Vermont senator, not, the Vermont senator the Vermont senator nomination if he arrived with the most delegates but fell short of a majority so basically like so we're going into South Carolina right so far like Iowa has been like uh, there's been some t- 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 fuckery going on but i think it's fair to say that like <laughs> sanders pretty much got
1: he, he got won- the most votes
0: he got the most votes so he won so Sand iowa got uh, sanders got iowa he got nevada he got new hampshire and his support only seems to be growing and growing and growing and the first episode our first episode of this podcast we we're talking about um, occupy wall street and sort of the well first of all the, the 2008 crash right financial crash then occupy wall street and that kind of i think years long bubbling of Economic populist rage that's kind of been going on in this country. Right. And Sanders represents that. And so, what Peter was saying about how unions have always represented the Democratic base, well, since the 80s and the 90s, the Democratic Party has largely moved away from its base. And, and I want to make this clear before I go on about the Democratic Party. I, I'm not, I really don't have like, I'm, I'm not super giddy about the two party system or super giddy about party lo- loyalty to the democratic party like i'm i'm just i'm not i don't really i don't hold any particular allegiance or affection for either of the major parties but uh, it's fair to say that traditionally the democratic party particularly since uh, uh, franklin delmo roosevelt and the whole new, new deal that the democratic party has always supposed to have represented unions the working class and since the civil rights era um black people and people of color, right? That's always been like the Democrats, that's always been part of their coalition. That's the democratic base, essentially a union working class downtrodden non-white and, and
1: and university professors.
0: Right. Yeah. So that's the democratic party coalition. And for the most part the, the Democrat, the democratic party in the establishment has largely moved away from its base. The heart and soul of it and it's really important especially for political parties because i think a lot of like i know i know someone who's like kind of um sort of a what you'd call like a consultant right and i think there's a good deal of these like sort of party consultant people who like they truly believe in liberal institutions party institutions and preserving the 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 unity and sanctity of those institutions but a lot of times and you see their commentaries a lot in like the new york times and a lot of these like other liberal publications but a lot one thing that they tend to miss out in their um analyses of of uh of the election and um political institutions is that political parties really they get their legitimacy from their base if the party yeah. does not have a base that it it, it, it pays fealty, a mass base that gives it legitimacy and it pays fealty to, that party is, is is no longer legitimate. So, and that's wow. when it comes to saving the Democratic Party. If you if that's the thing anyone if you care about, like saving the Democratic Party, the smartest thing to do would be to nominate Sanders because his base. You know, contrary to the, the all the, the talk about Bernie bros, the base of Bernie Sanders is largely people of color, women, and working class people. That's the Sanders base, and Sanders base is the Democratic Party's base. That's their base. And so, and I think since the 80s, a lot of people, a lot of the Democratic Party's bases felt like, you know what, this party's moving away from our interests. Mm-hmm. Our legitimate political aspirations, our economic interests. The party's moved away. And- considering things are getting really, really bad in this country, especially economically with the climate crisis and these endless wars, the Democrats have to make a decision like, okay, are we truly going to represent the will of our base or not? And this is why Sanders has been winning these states is because Sanders speaks to the heart and soul of the Democratic Party's base. And since the 80s and 90s, the Democrats have largely been gone the neoliberal route. We're going to you know they've been kowtowing to billionaires, Wall Street, corporate America, and so, and and I think that this this article in New York Times really shows that the party establish- establishment does not give a fuck about his base because they're saying that even if Sanders, hypothetically, which it, not even hypothetically, hypothetically, it seems very very like very very likely he could win the nomination and get um uh, the most delegates, right? You yeah. get the most votes. And he they're basically saying Yeah. So they're basically saying, okay, even in the case where he does get the most votes, which is democracy, they're gonna be like, no, we're gonna find someone else who's gonna have less votes than Sanders, and it's not gonna be <laughs> legitimized and voted by the people, the democratic base. They're willing to do that in order to yeah. undermine Sanders. And here's their reasoning, right? So their reasoning basically is they fear um uh, Sanders' impact on down t- on it, the down It's t- t- such races. it's
1: such crap. It's such crap. This is yeah. the, okay. If I can go off, this is like their go last. Ahead. Yeah, yeah. This is their one of their last arguments. Um, and you know, it's really like an insider argument, and it's it like, is. like for if you really care about the Democratic Party, you know, Democratic Party is not just about electing people. It's about it's about you know local races and all this shit. Um.
0: By Um, the way, the Democrats have lost a lot of local and state
1: races during the Obama years. Yeah, first of all, Democrats have been eating, state and local Democrats have been eating shit for 30 years running under neoliberalism. Particularly under
0: Obama. Yeah. Under Obama, they lost a lot of state and local elections. So,
1: yeah. Second of all, how the fuck is Pete Buttigieg or Mike Bloomberg or honestly even Elizabeth Warren going to help you down ticket? Let's... Like, let's let's be real here. Um, Third, half of these people deserve to lose because they're like healthcare CEOs. So, right. Yeah. um, Who cares about them? Like, all they ever do when they get elected is just hold up progressive legislation. So, like, the future of the Democratic Party is social democracy. And, you know, the the Justice Democrats in the squad and all of that shit that I mean, I won't say shit. I mean, these are like brave people, honestly, um, all those people, they represent a social democratic agenda. And if you destroy, if you crush the Bernie Sanders movement in the convention on national television, you are not just crushing that. You're not just crushing Bernie Sanders. You are also destroying the future of the Democratic Party. Um <laughs>
0: yeah and also chris yeah chris matthews i want to pop up this quote from chris matthews but as i as i look for it um so th- here's the thing is like i think this is my sort of assessment is that like if if the if the democratic party the officials the um uh if if they are willing to essentially um, you know just basically say like hey you know fuck democracy we're gonna pick someone else um they're basically guaranteeing, just saying, the U.S. might as well say outright that it's a it's a one party state, and also with the down ticket race impact. I mean, like Peter, I think that argument's bullshit. Because here's the thing: like, what they should be doing is running better Democrats. So if yeah. if if the wind is blowing in a social democratic direction in the country, and Sanders represents that, if the Democratic Party again, if they care about preserving the longevity of the Democratic Party. It would make sense, like, to say, okay, you know, what? we're going to run more progressive candidates on the state and local level, rather than sort of, sort of, uh, cut, cut the Sanders movement, because again, the Sanders, it's beyond Sanders. Like, he represents again the base of the Democratic Party that has not been listened to, and yeah. these elites are scared, and they're at the point where, like, Chris Matthews. On MSNBC, he kind of said the quiet part out loud, and I'm going to read it because, again, I think he's saying what a lot of these people are thinking, and it ties into this article. So he said this a couple days ago. He said, um, I'm wondering whether the Democratic moderates want Bernie Sanders to be president. Then he goes on, this may be too exciting a question to raise. They don't like Trump at all. Do they want Bernie Sanders to take over the Democratic Party in perpetuity? I mean, he takes it over. He sets the direction of the future of the party. Maybe they'd rather wait four. Maybe they'd rather wait four years and put in a Democrat that they like.
1: So think about that. yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
0: these what they're saying. What they're saying is they would rather risk another four years of Trump than have Sanders in office. So remember, all the past four years, it's been like Trump is an evil monster. The only only thing that matters is beating Trump. Trump,
1: Unless we have to beat Sanders.
0: We have to beat Donald Trump. By the way, most of the Democrats voted for Trump's military budget seven hundred yeah. billion dollars in, in, in military in, in, in military spending, right? So they they vote they voted also for NSA spying right. to grant him NSA yeah. spying powers. There's still the drone program that's going on under Trump, and expanded. by the way, there have been more. It, it's been expanded. More civilians have been killed under Trump than under Bush and Obama. So Trump is continuing all that. The Democrats are. And- largely on board with it and right now with Sanders as president uh potentially as a nominee they're saying Chris Matthews saying the quiet part out loud that they would rather have four years of Donald Trump so they can pick some sort of moderate centrist corporate Democrat that they like rather than implement a social democratic party agenda. And this is clear, like this is something the left has been saying for years about like how the yeah. two parties are really the same. And at this point, they're just saying it out loud, like they care more about preserving the democratic functionary class and in the interests of corporate America. And uh, they're more interested in that than implementing Medicare for all or a higher minimum wage, or a Green New Deal. They would rather have preserved those Democratic Party officials and their power and their stranglehold on power and corporate America's interests and Wall Street's interests. They'd rather preserve that and risk another four years of Trump, who, again, they said, the past four years, what have we been hearing from the Democrats? Oh, he's an existential threat to democracy. He's a Russian asset, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so you want another four years? They want another four years of that. versus social democracy
1: well here's the thing
0: now at this point
1: well here's the i mean part of the thing is that like all the consultant class like for them they these people who like like all of this was which was basically forged you know from the 80s the whole consultant class like these people's like direct financial interest is not in bernie sand like they will be out of a job because there will be no need Mm -hmm. for these people um, exactly, and there'll be, and there will be. A, if Bernie Sanders wins, like there will be a lot of people that will be out of the party. Um, a lot of yep. de- a lot of detritus, and so you know they know that. But there are, I don't know. I mean, like a lot of people I grew up with, my like parents' friends, a lot of like average, just like the you know person who still has the Obama sticker on their bumper still has the obama sticker along with like five other bumper stickers you know you're like you're just like your average democratic faithful most of them don't really have a they will vote for bernie sanders they don't have a problem with that um yeah you know those people aren't the problem but you know it really but they it really remains to be seen if you know this is This is like the most energy like a working class movement has had, you know, on the left in a very long time. And if the Democrats basically crush that, um, you know, if, you know, which I think they I, I mean, it depends on the day. Sometimes I'm like very excited and bullish about it. And sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm much more used to being miserable. So the you know, misery and doom feels more comfortable and I don't I mean, like to yeah. write about this stuff, but if they do basically do that, then the new de- that new deal coalition is dead. That in the yeah. democratic party. And
0: and it will, it will be a one party state at this point. You're unless, just going to basically unless we, gonna
1: have, unless we start building yeah. a labor party, which I think is right. the next step, but getting ahead yeah. of ourselves, you know, a lot of people still believe Bernie can win and, you know, I think right now it is important to like try and put out positive energy. You know, and kind of go out and, you know, kind of encourage like if you know any warned people to, you know, help try try and talk to them. Um, you know, and like because like it's really, I mean, it's good. It's just social democracy, guys. I don't, I don't. He's not a communist. I don't understand the. I understand what right. people are afraid of. And, and also
0: like, I mean, you know, like, yeah, Sanders, like, I mean, I've, I've had issues with him when it comes to, you know, not being, I just, I wish he were more forthright when it, when it comes to challenging the U.S. war machine. And I think also challenging the U.S. war machine would also help pay for a lot of the social programs he's proposing. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, Medicare for all, it's a great idea. We all need it. I want it higher minimum wage i mean especially i live in california right the it's true the rent is way too goddamn high it's way too fucking high it's way most, too high most in Maine people, too it's way too high actually everywhere and a, a higher minimum wage would make sense a green new deal especially with the reality of climate change and also this coronavirus is going around which it seems to be linked to climate change in terms of like how far it's spreading that makes sense so it's like he's proposing policies that like look you don't you that makes sense. Like, like it, There really isn't much of a really compelling argument in my in my opinion against raising the minimum wage, having single payer health care, having a green. Oh,
1: day. oh no! Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden will do all of those things. You know, they yeah. and they know how to do it. I don't know how they're going to do it because they'll they'll be because like it's still they're still the same fucking Senate. But you know, they just they know they they understand. Something about politics That Bernie Sanders just doesn't understand Apparently I don't well, know he, what that is They never tell me what that is but They just know
0: Yeah well here's the thing is like I mean It's particularly like a lot of people who I uh, want to make A response to not really just warrant people but a lot of people who are like Well you know Bernie, Bernie Sanders Does not have a plan blah 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 blah. Like all that That's kind of stuff such like, crap.
1: Gonna,
0: it's, it's bullshit bec- and here's why I think it's bullshit is because Again, Bernie Sanders has a base. The Republican, the Republicans understand this better than the Democrats. Yeah. The Republican Party is able to pass an agenda because they have a base. It's a horrible base. It's a racist base. But they have a base that they're accountable to. And mm-hmm. so that base provides political muscle that helps them get their legislation passed. The Democrats need the same thing. You need a base that represents you. Yes. It's just basic politics 101. If you're a political party and you want to pass legislation – your base is your political muscle to get to get things through you're not going to get things through by meeting Mitch McConnell halfway that's yeah. not that's not how it works cuz you're going to yeah. get usually you, you're going to at best you're going to get the most watered down version of a pro- progressive policy that you're going to get which isn't going to no, do anything he's, this he's as not much he's, as you he's
1: not he's those republicans are in total fucking mode they're not go- yeah. they have no incentive yeah. to work with anyone the, no, the no, whole, no. that whole idea of bipartisan compromise is based on a previous reality where there basically when white supremacist patriarchy was so completely entrenched in national politics that it really was just like a gentleman's club and it was like, you know, yeah, we'll just drink a bunch of whiskey and uh hammer the shit out, right? That's not like what politics is now, so and yeah and yeah. And,
0: and you need you need also muscle to defeat the modern Republican Party is just white racism without a mask on right because yeah. since Nixon's southern strategy the Democratic Party hit I mean sorry the Republican party they used to be a Democratic party but now they're in the Republican Party but like that former slaveholding class of the Democrats mm-hmm. switched the Republicans during Nixon's southern strategy in 1968 so since then the De- the Republican Party, has always been basically a safe haven for racists and bigots. Donald Trump is just that without the mask anymore. Because previously yeah. they kinda had to hide their bigotry. And this is going back to Lee Atwater, which is basically, okay, don't say the N-word, just just say, we're opposed to bussing, you know, we're opposed to all these policies that hurt, you know, black people and people of color. Now Trump is just like, hey, you know what? Fuck Mexicans. We don't want them anymore. You know, so he's saying the quiet racist part out loud, and that's why he won because he appealed to again what was always part of the Republican base, which is overt white nationalism and overt white racism. So the way to defeat oh. that is having a strong multiracial it's, working class it, base
1: to defeat it. You know, and that's how you. And what, what doesn't defeat it is you is people with weird obsessions for twenty five page white papers that nobody will read, but are going to account for every single dime or whatever, like. What people have to understand is that the whole "how are you going to pay for it?" Well, first of all, governments aren't households. This is like a basic part of macroeconomics. They don't have you don't have to account for like every. It's not like balancing a checkbook. Um,
0: and governments can print money too. Households yes. can.
1: Yes. Yes. There's a lot of there. You know, there's a lot of difference. But also, like, it's that whole thing is just designed to get people off message. Anytime someone asks a question anytime you're like why are they asking this dumb question it's just to get you know bernie sanders off message so he talks about dumb shit instead of the shit he's going to talk about so trying to penny pinch and account for every single dime the medicare for all plan is just that's all it's doing nobody actually knows or cares even the people who's who like have graduate degrees in health policy like all two thousand of them like they don't. It even they like understand that like that's not the most important thing right now. Um, so the yeah. it's so the Warren people who are just like I love plants and I love you know if they for they're able to like argue that you know we're basically on the same side. They just love spreadsheets or whatever. But like it really is going to like. Do you really love spreadsheets more than like actually? enacting change i mean like
0: spreadsheets are boring by the way so
1: yes and most regular people don't read spreadsheets this is this is the thing that people this is the thing that the warren people who got great grades and you know are and all that shit like regular regular people don't have time and like they don't have the mental energy to focus on that shit and they just need like you know someone who can coherently and believably convince them that they are on their side, and Elizabeth Warren doesn't do that because, you know, she's not. Sometimes, sometimes I feel like, you know, um, like oh, okay, yeah, she, she, you know, she has the right idea about things, but then it's just like, it just, it just doesn't, you know, the classic sort of question of like, does Elizabeth Warren care about people like me and my coworkers? I just. I can't, you know, answer yes. I just can't. Like it there's no feeling I, yeah. there.
0: Well, I think and just to wrap this up, uh, and getting onto Sankara, but I'll, I'll just add this one point that I one thing I've been noticing is I think there is like a real class divide among so called yes. progressives in America. And I've been noticing that with like someone someone pointed us out, two of my friends who are Muslim pointed us out. They said, uh amongst the Muslim community in the U S they said, a lot of the Muslims who support Warren tend to be wealthier and more upper class. Whereas the working class Muslims tend to go for Sanders. And I kind of noticed that amongst the the black community in America is that like a lot of regular kind of working class black folks, I think in my opinion, they're either going to swing for Sanders or Biden. And, but the ones who are more like professional managerial class, a lot of them tend to go for Warren. And I think one sort of, thing I've noticed, um, just just in terms of the commentary and shit like that when it comes to selection is um I think like I think Warren again she speaks to certain so Solutions is like working within capitalism as much as possible, where Bernie Sanders is like basically working as much outside as much outside of capitalism as much as much as possible. But one thing I've noticed is that like yeah a lot of Professional class, professional managerial class, upper middle class people tend to like Warren. In the sense I get, and this is even talking just friends of mine who know Warren supporters
1: and even people yeah, I know who are Warren, too Warren ma- supporters. Too, too many people we went to school with, honestly.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of them, I think, like, you know, they're in, again, professional managerial class jobs. They're not rich, but they're also not poor, and they're usually not around working class people on a very regular basis and so their lives for the most part i'm not saying they're perfect but like their lives are kind of fine it's okay so it's it's like yeah like they'll settle
1: yeah yeah it's it's not a thing a uh this isn't about their direct future like even like trump makes them feel bad you know but it isn't like They don't understand how they're going to live the next four years without Bernie Sanders being president. And I am not kidding when I'm saying that there are a large amount of people who think that way. Um, Yeah. And this is that's more important than whatever weird mean tweets people get sent to you. But Adam, are you saying that perhaps class concerns are people consider them over racial concerns
0: Actually, Peter, what I'm saying is that, and this is to piggy, this is a segue into the next topic of our uh, of our podcast is sankara. That actually, did you know that you can have a robust critique of white supremacy and European colonization and still have a critique of capitalism in favor socialism?
1: <gasps> oh I, my god! I, I, I don't Believe you that sound that sounds like some. White trust fund Bernie bro put you up to this.
0: You and you know who's a total white trust fund Bernie bro? Thomas Sankara. Like he's okay. from Africa. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I, <God>. Th- <laughs> this whole Bernie bro shit is just. Oh, God. Anyway, <laughs> on to Thomas Sankara. Uh, <laughs> yeah. to, to the man who we name the man. Who uh, we named our podcast over, Thomas. Yes, Arncare. yes. We
1: uh, word up, white lefties. We're the only ones who can claim him. You can't claim him anymore. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. I exactly. love you guys, yeah. but um, it's it, you can't claim him anymore.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so Thomas Arncar. He was uh, born um, December twenty first, nineteen forty nine. He died. Well, he's assassinated by a friend of his. Uh, On October fifteenth, nineteen eighty-seven, he was a revolutionary from Burkina Faso, which uh, was like much of West Africa was colonized by France. And during the time of French colonization, was referred to as Upper Volta and the Republic of Upper Volta. Burkina Faso, when Thomas Sankara became president, means "land of upright men." He He changed the the
1: name to Burkina Faso. It was upright Volta. It was. Upright, upright Volta. <laughs> um, so it's it was like a band name. Yeah, yeah. Mars Volta is cool. Upper Volta yeah. when um, when he took over, and he and he was the one who changed it. You know, in the classic sort of sense of like getting rid of the colonial name, um, and yeah. getting rid of the neo-colonial system that accompanied it. And that's you know that's basically he was someone who. Um, he, yeah, he grew up in pretty poor family. Um, and, but he was very smart and he, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of, you know, poor countries, the military is the only way you can advance yourself. Um, yeah. you come from humble backgrounds. So he joined the military and did enough well in school to get sent to a military academy in madagascar in 19 mm-hmm. in 1970 and what was going on in madagascar 1970 in the early 70s
0: yeah yeah so i think thomas Ankar. i think um his family i think his upbringing was probably somewhat middle class but i think like being middle class and Burkina Faso at the time may be different than middle class in America but so yeah like he um he began basic military training in 1966 so he was like I think he was around like uh like 16 17 around that time um and he went to Madagascar for officer training and um this was the the at that time it was under the government of um Philibert Sirinana and Madagascar had um Basically, won is independence from France um, in the early 60s. But uh, Suriname was sort of like, I think, one of those sort of neo-colonial pop uh, politicians who was a holdover from the, the former European colonizers. And so there were popular um, student and farmer uprisings against the government of Suriname at the time in the early 70s. So Sankara is, you know, a young young guy going through office training in Madagascar and witnessing these popular um uprisings against this essentially this neo colonial government. And it was around that time he was reading Karl Marx and uh Lenin. So he was getting real political consciousness yeah. at the time he was getting military training. Then he returned yeah. to yeah, what I, was then still called Upper Volta in nineteen seventy
1: two. I wanna say that, you know, yeah, in the late sixties, early seventies, like you know, every, like, especially in a lot of the global South, it was like, people were just, like, everyone was learning about communism, you know, and not weird Cold War shit, like the, like, the actual shit, you know, they either would, like, you know, you could go, a lot of people went to the Soviet Union for, you know, free university education and, you know, people like Ho Chi Minh and, you know, lots of people from Africa as well um, got, you know, learned, like, were trained in guerrilla warfare. A lot of the ANC, African National Congress, that was fighting the apartheid regime, you know, were trained in the Soviet Union. Um, And so, you know, it makes perfect sense that, like, just being in a military academy in the early 70s, you know, he would be exposed to these ideas. And I think he was even exposed to them earlier, but there he got to see him in action and it clearly had an effect on him. So, Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and he, so after his military training in 1972, he returned to what was then still called Upper Volta, but now it's called Burkina Faso. And there was a a border war between Burkina Faso and Mali and that's where he he earned his fame being a soldier during that war for his heroic performance. And so Mm -hmm. Um, he became more politicized, and he was a popular figure in the capital of Wagadugu. Uh, that's the capital of Burkina Faso. Um, that's the that's the way I know how to pronounce it. There could be other pronunciations, mm-hmm. but he's he was also a musician. He was a pretty decent guitarist. He played
1: oh, in man. a band. He he, so, he, so he, he and like, Blaze were in a band together. Oh man, that's oh, a, that's oh, a fucking yeah. movie to be made. I can't. Yeah, I can't
0: and so it. yeah, and and. He um he met Blaise Campare um, in uh, commando training. Um was, I think it was around the time he was doing commando training somewhere in, in like Morocco and so. Um anyway, he he works his way up through the military government and he he becomes president of Burkina Faso in uh, basically a non-violent coup d'etat um, in uh, in 19, 1983. Um and yeah, and one one thing that really st- sticks out to me in learning more about Sankara is, um, and I think what's really interesting—the more I learn about like African history and politics—and I'm I'm still learning more, so yeah. I I don't know everything. But what I find we definitely fascinating, don't know everything. right? Yeah, so we're we're still learning as well. But the, you know, what's fascinating about Sankara, and I think particularly at that time, is you know after uh the independence movements um the national independence movements in these african countries you know there's there's still self-rule in terms of the governments but there's still like a sort of holdover class from the colonial era that still want to have hold on power and there's still like a segment of elites in african continents who still want to maintain a friendly relationship with their former colonial powers, whereas Sankar was like, yeah. fuck all
1: that. Yeah, ne- and he and he neo- pissed
0: off a lot of people because <laughs>
1: Yeah. Neo-colonialism. Um Kwame Nkrumah, the leader of Ghana in the late 60s, um he wrote a lot about it. If you want to understand sort of basically how um, you know, they yeah, African states were granted formal independence, but the colonial relationships, you know, that made the relationships that made colonialism profitable for European countries, especially France. Um, they have a whole thing called France Afrique, which, you know, it's basically like the neo-colonial relationship France has with its former colonies, um, including yeah. Burkina Faso. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. that's yeah, that, that there's that, also that's the
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, also ever since, this is one thing to kind of keep in mind too, this is more, um, contemporary when it comes to, uh, understanding, um, you know, Africa, uh, during, um, the 2011, 2011, um, U S NATO, uh, U S slash NATO military intervention in, uh, Libya, there is a spillover effect it had in the rest of, rest of Africa, and a lot, of, particularly France. I remember at the time were, they were very giddy about being part of the coalition mm-hmm.
1: to bomb Libya and get yeah. rid of Gaddafi. Oh yeah, they rolled in into Mali. They were so happy about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, and also, like when it comes to you know uh, um, drone strikes, um, there there's a drone drone base in uh, Niger in Africa. And I'm sure some of you guys remember there was an um, ambush against U.S. soldiers in Niger not too long ago. Um, and so there's a lot of, like, covert and secret operations going on because the U.S. is still looking at – because if you put, look at Burkina Faso on the map, there's Burkina Faso, there's Mali, there's countries like Niger and Chad. that are pretty much, like, right on the edge of the, of the Sahara, and a lot of those countries are Muslim. And so the U.S. is still – is viewing – africa as like another front in the war on terror and so there are some which, which, which is
1: a fun way of saying running guns to separatist militias to yeah. um further you know their own geopolitical goals who whatever they are who even know it was like what the hell are we doing in these right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's a lot of it's like, there's, these are like drone bases. A lot of them are mostly for uh, surveillance and to usually help uh, coordinate whatever operations are going on in the ground. And a lot of times U S soldiers are training the militaries of these, of these countries, but you know, there's a lot more, uh, um, going on there. And also there are protests in Mali, uh, I think still going on, but they were going, they, they, they were, they're going on recently against french military bases in Mali, so so there's still this you can still see this neo-colonial relationship between the united states and western europe with africa and sankara i think is a very fascinating and inspiring figure to look at particularly in the context of that history because he was just basically a giant middle finger to that relationship so he was he was very much about not relying on foreign aid. He was very much about self-sufficiency for. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Bi-local. He was like the original bi-local guy. Right. Um,
0: And and not in like a hipster semi-capitalist way. He was very socialist communist. Like he was. and Yeah. He, he was, he was basically just said F you to foreign aid. Um, Was very anti-imperialist. He regularly called out Europe's imperial relationship with Africa um, he was also a feminist as well.
1: yeah, this he is a really great thing strong,
0: so he he strongly believed in the role that women have to play in the revolution. And so he uh, he banned forced marriages. he also banned genital mut- mutilation. Um, he also I think he had one law uh, where he allowed women to take a break from shopping and made the men go shopping. oh
1: yeah it was of- it was on international women's Day. Which was, which initially was International Working Women's Day. And they took that out to, uh, now it's like very, it's kind of, it's gotten very neoliberal, but it was very much a socialist holiday when it was first uh, conceived.
0: Here's what uh, Thomas Sankara said about women's rights he said, the revolution and women's liberation go together. We do not talk of women's emancipation emancipation as an act of charity or because of a surge of human compassion it is a basic necessity for the triumph of the revolution women hold up the other half of the sky um yeah he also promoted um contraception and so like you know he was very ardent socialist was all about empowering burkina faso and was was a feminist and so he he saw um the role of women as crucial in terms of building up Burkina Faso, building up the nation, building up um, the revolution, and yeah. uh, he also he also made severe cuts to the salaries of government employees because previously they were like a lot of a lot of government employees uh, officials at the time were driving nice cars, had fat salaries. So he cut their salaries by a lot. <laughs> I forgot the percentage, but it was, it was significant. Yeah. He also cut his own salary, forced them to drive. They had to switch from the old Mercedes Benz to like these sort of just regular janky cars. Pure, were they so Pugos? they had to live I was Trying
1: to figure that out. I, I think I think so. I think they're Pugos. I'm not sure.
0: Maybe someone else can look up the model yeah. of the car. It was an old. One of those old, like, kind of seemed like a European 1980s model car. Um, he he himself lived very humbly, so he practiced what he preached in terms of his uh, socialist values. And you know, a lot of times, like. Socialism here in the West is, particularly in the United States, has always seemed like, oh, it's just you know, it's just only white dude bros compare care about socialism, only white dude bros compare care about capitalism. But Sankara is like to me, he, he, you could, he's the one who he understood the, great. I'm gonna say intersection, like intersectionality.
1: Intersectionality is a good word. It's not a bad word.
0: It's not a bad it's just been watered down so so much that I'm I'm conscious about how I use it. But he yeah, he under he he implemented socialism within the context of, of lifting the Burkina Faso nation and uh unfortunately he met a very um, tragic end. Like I was saying earlier, he uh, pissed off a lot of African elites who still wanted to have a capitalist relationship with European capitalist countries. So his friend, Blaise Kampare, there was um basically, yeah, there's a coup, and it, he was assassinated in yeah. a coup in October fifteenth, nineteen eighty seven, and the troops were led by his friend, Blaise Kampare. Um it's just something uh, wait, I wanna read the quote that uh, that uh, Sankara said before he died, but it was just a week before Sankara's assassination. He said while revolutionaries as individuals can't be murdered you cannot kill ideas and he
1: was assassinated he, by his he pre he yeah. preceded v for vendetta by 20 years <laughs> yeah um
0: and so Blaise campari um he uh yeah he um uh, played or he assassinated uh I don't know if he was the one who pulled the trigger, but he was probably the cool that the um, coup that killed Sakar. Yeah. He
1: might have. I should I should have yeah. watched the documentary again right beforehand. Yeah. But I do wanna it's... I do wanna sort of get yeah. into some of the later parts. So like he was only in power for four years and like Yeah. In those four years, right, he uh he like massively Increase the grain output. Um, you know, engaged in these sort of very. I mean, they were a lot of the a lot of the tactics and stuff he was doing was like straight from the Soviet Union, from like the Russian Revolution. I mean, you know, some. Well, I. Well, he he there were some. We'll get to sort of. I don't know. I would not say criticisms, but it was it got. By the end, it was getting to be a complicated situation. But you know, he uh, basically like built, utilized people power, pure people power, to build like a hundred kilometers of railroads. Um, and he, you know, and he was leading. He was trying to um, organize. You know, basically get like the entire African country, African organization of african unity basically like most of the continent to do a debt strike on um on the uh with the world bank because you know the world bank and imf international monetary fund were basically these institutions set up to like give out loans for development in global south countries but they usually came with these terrible restrictions um and yeah, it, like, and you know, basically, you'd either end up being unable to pay it, or you'd have to impose all these very pro-market, um, mo- you know, measures, sell off all of your, uh, sell off all of your like state-owned assets and stuff. But I guess some of the more controversial things that he engaged in, um, you know, which were part of revel. This is like like. It's important to not necessarily you know purely romanticize like what a revolutionary movement is because it is like you're throwing out an old order and instituting a new one and that is not a clean process um so part of part of the thing he introduced was you know revolutionary tribunals and this is like a uh this is I mean, this is a thing... He, he didn't invent this concept in other... You know, in China and in Russia and in other sort of revolutionary situations. You know, it's basically like the idea is that, you know, in the new revolution, like, your shitty boss and the landlord that has, you know, treated you like shit and every... And all the corrupt, like, officials, you know, that exist in your area beforehand... Um, you know, now, like, you get to put them on trial and enact some sort of justice. But, you know, if it isn't sort of like a rigorously overseen process, then, you know, what can happen is that, like, basically people have, like, old scores, old feuds they settle, and they can, and they utilize, um, you know, this new revolutionary situation to, um, you know, sell the
0: scores. Uh, hold on a second. Um... Hey everyone, Adam here. Uh, Peter and I, we had uh, some technical technical difficulties with the podcast software on our end. So, um, the previous hour was recorded fine, but then it stopped in the middle. So, I had to do some uh, kind of cutting and pasting and syncing with the audio. So, yeah, around this time we got cut off, and then we had to just redo redo the take so um the next couple the next 10-15 minutes of this podcast is fine so anyway just wanted to uh make a note of that because yeah because as you can tell on the podcast there's a weird sort of uh, uh sort of glitch that happened so anyway that was the reason why um but don't worry the next part of this podcast toward the end uh everything everything else is
1: fine so anyway enjoy Yeah, alright, so last time around. So, one of the things Thomas Sankara did was institute people's revolutionary tribunals, and this is not, like, a concept he invented. Um, This happens pretty frequently in revolutionary situations. Um, But, it's basically, like, imagine post-revolution like, all your, all the terrible, like, bosses and, like, of corrupt officials and you know landlords and shit that everyone hates you get to put them on trial for all the terrible things that they've done um and this is a good thing like let's not let's be clear this is a good thing but it can be um you know it you know like any sort of judicial process it has to be rigorously overseen and also like uh um animosity international you know frickin' imperialist stooges, um, you know, criticized, you know, a lot of, like, sort of liberal foundations criticized this for not adhering to, you know, the traditional sort of jurisprudence, uh, like, you know, right, innocent till proven guilty, you know, right to lawyer and stuff. And, I mean, some people agree with it, but it's also true that, like, a lot of those... Norms are, like, about the bourgeoisie defending its property. But, you know, the other thing is, like, another important part of, you know, another thing that happens in revolutions is, like, sort of creating popular militias, um, you know, arming the people to be able to defend the revolution if it gets invaded. But, you know, if that's, you know, it's like, if you organize a bunch of military militias, but they're not, you know, um, well, you know, rigorously overseen, then, you know, out-of-control behavior um, can happen. And there were instances of that, though. Sankara um, definitely, you know, took um, steps to, uh, you know, address that. And I guess the other big thing is that Um, you know, there were, you know, in the middle of the literacy program, there also, there basically weren't, like, independent unions, um, which, um, created a problem with, like, the teachers, and there was a teacher strike in 1987, um, and he tried to sort of create, like, a revolutionary teachers program, um, that, you know, didn't have the great... It, it didn't do well so by 1987 um you know he was getting a little bit unpopular at home but that really wasn't what did him in honestly what did him in was the elections in france um because mitterrand was the previous prime minister he was more of like a moderate liberal and you know in He was out, and Jacques Chirac, who's, you know, a right-wing conservative, was in, and, you know, he basically moved pretty quickly to take, to end this situation. But if he hadn't, right, then, you know, they would have just made Thomas Sankara. If Thomas Sankara hadn't, you know, basically died as a martyr, then they would have just made him another authoritarian African dictator, um, and you know he would have they would have made him like a really they would have made him out to be like a really bad guy, so a lot of times like you know it's it's something to think about when you're thinking about his legacy, but you know alongside i guess like you know some of his failings um you know he really did represent a vision of hope for the entire continent, yeah
0: yeah and also um, so I think we were talking about the cars. so yeah so the government had a fleet of Mercedes and the model he switched to was a Renault 5 it's a Renault 5 that was the cheapest car sold at Burkina Faso at the time so those are the cars that the government officials and ministers had to had to drive he reduced the salaries of public service including his own and his own salary as president was $450 a month he limited his possessions to a car, four bikes, three guitars, a refrigerator, and a broken freezer. He also re- refused to use air conditioning in his office because he said that luxury was not available
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, to most people in Burkina Faso. And he also redistributed land land from feudal landlords um, to the peasants, um, which helped make the helped make the country the country food uh, self sufficient. So. I mean, yeah, like a lot of, like any ruler of any country, I mean, there's, they're gonna, they're gonna be, criticisms and measures they do where they overstep, their bounds. But you know, you also have to balance. I mean, just, just, just as, just as, and I'm just speaking in terms of like just assessing, um, a leader because like look you can look at a pre- play of our presidents right like i mean yeah there's some good things i mean look there's some good things that fdr did but hey he also oversaw japanese internment right Yeah. so and so, and
1: i also want to say it's not just like oh he did some good things and he did some bad things um both you know no revolution happens in a vacuum and it never happens right. under ideal conditions so you know you have to take like i mean a lot of state infrastructures in african countries you know are underdeveloped and so you know you really do have to work with what you've got and so you know that can go awry but it isn't like you know but these are parts of the process it's not like there are some less you know uh, hope and wonderful inspiring parts of the process um you know it's it's not it's you know it's not like people i don't like to talk about i don't like to use the r word so much right now because i think people need to be very clear about what that process entails if they want to go around calling for it right
0: um and yeah i'll i'll by uh, r word i mean
1: revolution but i also don't use the other one (laughs) yeah
0: Uh, so, Blaise Kampare, um, he was president of Burkina Faso. So, he, he basically assassinated or at least played a role in assassinating Sankara in um, 1987. And he um, basically undid a lot of the reforms that were implemented uh, by Sankara from 83 to 87. And Blaise Kampare was president from of Burkina Faso from... 1987 to 2014. So he was in office for 27 mm-hmm. years, and there was an uprising in 2014 that um, ousted him, and he had to he he was ousted on he resigned from as president on Halloween, October 31st, 2014, and he fled to uh, uh, Ivory Coast, and um, yeah, and so uh, he was he was also. He played a role in the in the Sierra Leone Civil War. And he introduced Charles Taylor to, um, more Mark Gaddafi. He also he also helped Charles Taylor in the Sierra Leone War. Ooh. So like, um, you know he he had a, uh, Clampari had a pretty. Uh, not so pleasant. Yeah. record. Yeah. I'm he, putting that, I'm, I'm putting that very yeah. very very. I, mild. He, also, <laughs> he also
1: like completely changed course and basically did all the neoliberal IMF. You know shit france and everyone else wanted him to do
0: yeah and so to wrap this up um uh, you know given not just this election but the the things that are going on in the world from the you know endless u.s wars to the very serious climate crisis in the world um the rise of fascism in the West, not to see the United States, but in Europe and throughout Western countries. Um, And and even also in India too, with with Modi in power as well. So, you know, all, all the stuff that's going on and, and I think that there's a real collapse of legitimacy in the neoliberal world order. And I think there's, there's this time is ripe uh, for new fresh, radical political thinking because I think as we began this episode by talking about the elections, it's very, very clear that the two-party system uh, is, you know, first of all, the Republican Party, they just want total white nationalism and fascism at this point. Whereas the Democrats, they don't want, they would rather have four years of Trump than social democracy. So the Democrats, like, don't want to have any kind of even mild progressive reform so at this point especially with the sanders base you know it's, it's like if, if you don't have a democratic part a party in the u.s that represents that very real uh aspiration for progressive populist social democratic policies it's got that energy has to go somewhere so i think now's a time to have real radical thinking and ideas and politics and there needs to be like a new kind of politics and in sort of the I guess raison d'etre of the, this 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 show or his podcast and the reason why we're doing this is like we both Peter and I sort of see ourselves as at least trying to stand in the tradition of people like Sankara and other uh black African uh socialist uh um, and- revolutionaries and thinkers and implementing, trying to learn from that stuff and implement them and see what we can learn uh, today. Yeah,
1: and internationalism is, I think, a big key. That was a big part of it. But, yeah, when I watched, you know, the documentary, um, preparing for, you know, this stuff to kind of get me back up to speed, it was like, you know, he really represented like a this kind of new you know it was just a new over i mean he did plenty of good things but it's also just like represented a vision a possibility um of a future and of a world that just didn't have to be you know just un i unnecessary i feel like unnecessarily exploitative and just mean and cruel and like people You know the possibility that people could come together and determine their own destiny to live decent lives um you know if there's anything that i think we're doing you know that would ever come close to that it's you know trying to carry on you know trying to represent that you know and also yeah thinking about how right one election in france determined his fate basically You know, it's important to remember when we're here in the Imperial Corps, as we are, that, like, our decisions, you know, what goes on here has effects worldwide.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um, with that, uh, we'll end this podcast. Uh, I mean, in this episode, I mean. No, we're done. (laughs) We're not quitting the... We're not quitting this podcast we'll, game. We'll never uh, we up. We we are just getting started. Um and yeah, so um again follow us at Sunkar Hours on Twitter. Um s- please subscribe, support us, um sp- spread, tell people about this podcast. Um and like I said, like, you know, uh now's a time for really Radical thinking of politics because the current order as it exists globally is is not up to speed. It's not. Yeah, it's not doing it. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I mentioned that New York Times article because I think like the Democratic Party establishment—they're just saying the quiet part out loud Mm -hmm. now—that they would rather have four years of neo-fascism under Trump rather than implementing any kind of mild social democratic reform. So there has to be another way to channel that energy and at least chart like a new vision for what the world uh, could look like. And um, yeah, we're not the only ones doing it. There are plenty of other people who are fighting for freedom and justice and basically just to create a better world for all of humanity. So we definitely stand in solidarity with that. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's all I got to say. You, You you. you have anything else to say? Peter? Uh,
1: it's pretty. It's like three o'clock now, but I'm listening to the new G Herbo album that just came out. Nice. Uh, nice. I'm trying. I'm trying to keep up on, on SoundCloud rap. But it's hard.
0: Oh, uh, you're probably doing a better job than I am.
1: Um, oh, I I have coworkers that are like a decade younger than me. So,
0: oh shit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So. That's it for this podcast. Yeah, peace. All right, peace.
2: Hey, la 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 Sankara, Thomas Sankara, Capitaine Sankara, se sorte par la qui Capitaine San ce Se sentait vraiment Qui t'en Un coup d'état Entraîne toujours D'autres coups d'état Et les frères d'armes Tôt ou tard Deviennent ennemis Et ça je vous l'avais déjà dit Le pouvoir se prend Par les urnes Et non par les armes